Hey, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you can, wherever you may be. It may even be morning. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state. And uh, what that means is that if you have a paranormal need or you think you have a, par- a paranormal thing going on, we can get to you. It might take us a while, but we can definitely get to you. If you're here, then it's obviously Sunday night, and this is the night we read from Rebecca F. Pittman's book on the Salem Witch Trials. And uh, I'm going to be doing that. And if you're seeing this, this is not a, this is not live. This is a pre-recorded video because I'm, uh, I'm in Anaheim, at Disneyland. I can't be in two places at once, right? Okay. And then uh, just to clarify a few things, too, if you're watching this or, he- or listening to it, I mean, you don't even have to stare at me while I read. You can just go do dishes or do whatever it is you're doing dinner. Um, if you like what you hear, if you're, if, if you're, I don't know how you would enjoy this book because it's very tragic, but if, if, if you're into what you're hearing and stuff and you're watching and you're watching from Facebook or you're watching from YouTube, please be sure to hit the like button. And also if you're watching from YouTube and you haven't done so already, please subscribe. There is that little ghost down the bottom right hand corner right there. Click on him and that'll take you to the subscription button. Okay. And same thing for Facebook, uh, Facebook, uh, events oh i'm sorry huh. california haunts ghostly events and my california and, and my page and then we also have california haunts pages but you can find us there you can find us at twitter at cal haunts you can find us at tiktok at california haunts which is all lowercase you can find me on instagram ghosty gal which is all lowercase anyway without further ado i'm going to read the book and like i said you don't necessarily have to sit stand here and watch me pour into a book when you can obviously be doing something else and just listen to my listen to my charming voice as I as I read the book right okay so let's get started and it is the uh give me this here I actually have it open for once it's the history and haunting of Salem the witch trials and beyond by Rebecca F. Pittman and just as an aside we do have permission from Rebecca and the and and, and the publishing company to read the book okay so here we go we left off uh, last Sunday, or was it Wednesday? Something like Wednesday, I think. I think I ended up bringing Tuesday or Wednesday. The examination of George Burroughs. So here we go. And like I said, it's going to be about an hour, and then I'll uh, stop, and you can go your merry way and enjoy your <laughs> do whatever it is you do on a Sunday night, right? Okay. Just figuring out. Okay. The examination of George Burroughs. Name uh, 9 May 1692, before William Stoughton honored Judge Hallam or Hawthorne's parentheses a question mark, Sam Sewell Esquire's Jonathan Corwin. Being asked whether he partook of the Lord's Supper, he being, as he said, in full communion at Roxbury, he answered it was so long since he could not tell. Yet he yet he owned he was at a meeting on one Sabbath at Boston part of the at Boston part of the day, and the other at Charleston part of a Sabbath, when that sacrament happened to be at both, yet did not partake of either. He denied that his house at Casco was haunted, yet he owned there were to- yet he owned there were toads. He denied that he made his wife swear that she should not write to her father Ruck without his appropriate without his approbation of her letter to her father to her father. He owned that none of his children but the eldest was baptized. Note, asterisk, the above was in private, none of the bewitched being present. At his entry into the room, many, if not all the bewitched, were grievously tortured. 
sus. Sheldon testified that Burroughs' two wives appeared in their winning sheets, in their winding sheets, and said that man killed them. Words rubbed out of whatever manuscript the author read. He was bid to look upon sus Sheldon. He looked back and knocked down all or more of the afflicted. We woe stood behind him. Sus. She says, one line is too faint. The soldiers, too, Mercy Lewis' deposition going to be read, and he looked upon her, and she fell into a dreadful, tedious fit. Mary Walcott tes testimony going to be read. One, Alice Hubbard, and they all fell into fits, Susan Sheldon. Now, she's taken these off old court records and old, you know, tablets of I'm figuring at the library and, and whatever else, so that's why it's kind of j jumbled up. Plus, I'm not used to reading 1600 um Writing, so I'm going to mess up words too. I'm just letting you guys know. Just letting you guys know. So one, Alice Hubbard, and they all fell into fits. Susan Sheldon, Susan Sheldon affirmed each of them that Ann Putnam Jr. He brought the book. Have them write, being asked what he thought of these things. He answered that it was amazing, that it was amazing and humbling providence, but he understood nothing of it. He said, "Some of you may observe that when they began to name." My name, they cannot name it. Ann Putnam Jr. testified that his two wives, Susan Sheldon and two children, Susan, and this is Sheldon, and two children, did accuse him. The bewitched were so tortured that authority ordered them, and this is a, this is a note, the bewitched were so tortured that authority ordered them to be taken away. Some of them, Sarah Biver testified that he had hurt her, though she had not seen him personally before, as she knew. Abigail Hobbs, Deliberate Hobbs, testimony read, was Eliezer Kaiser. Captain Willard, testimony about his great Juno, J.N.O. Brown. Strength in the gun, J.N.O. Uh, Weldon Captain Putnam testified, testified about the gun. Captain Wormwood testified about the gun and the molasses. M molosos. I don't know if it's molasses or molosses. M-A-L-L-O-S-S-O-E-S. He denied that about the molosses about the gun. He said he took it before the lock and rested upon his breast. John Brown. John Brown testified about a bazaar of Crider. He denied that his family was affrighted by a white calf in his house. Captain Putman testified that he made his wife enter into a covenant. 11 May. 1692. Abigail, Hobbs in prison, affirmed that George Burroughs, in his shape, appeared to her and urged her to set hand to the book, which she did. And afterwards, in his own person, he acknowledged to her that he had made her set her hand at the book, to the book. George Burroughs was held over for trial, as were other defendants brought in that day under arrest for witchcraft. Their records did not survive. Ann Sears, Lydia Dustin's daughter, Sarah, the leaders of daughter Sarah and Berthea Carter were held over for trial. Constable Bach reported that all were in jail. However, 21-year-old Berthea Carter Jr. was still free. She may have been questioned and released. That same day, Sarah Churchill, who had once been one of the afflicted, had accused her master, George Jacobs Sr., of hurting her. He had called her a bitch witch, and according to Mary Warren, had tried to kill Sarah by leaning on her with his two canes as she convulsed. Sarah, after being inter interrogated, changed her story and confessed to witchcraft in the hopes of seeing leniency like Mary Warren before her. It didn't work. 
The magistrates were now leery of anyone changing their stories, especially with the nervous afflicted victims Hang on a second. Claiming, okay, claiming she was free of pain only because she had joined the devil. That night at Ingersoll's, George Jack Jacob Spector attacked Mercy Lewis. John Willard Shape came after Susanna Sheldon and Elizabeth Colson, Lydia Dustin's granddaughter, offered the afflicted a black coin if they would touch the book. The, the Spectres flew, right? Yeah, the Spectres flew. The prisoners languished away in May, in the May sunlight in their jail rooms as the afflicted of Salem Village turned their eyes to the invisible world to see whom it, they would pluck from it next. Chapter 23, Family Against Family On May 10, 1692, the latest prisoners were taken to Boston Prison via Nathaniel Ingersoll's rented cart. Once again, the ferry crossed from, from familiar farmland into a bustling harbor city with fine brick homes and ladies in fancy apparel. The bound hands of the accused would have caused all to stop and stare as the cart made its way to the austere stone prison. Witches, some may have whispered in fear, as the wooden wheels creaked past them. The news of Salem Village and the outbreak of evil flooding into its meeting house was well known. Also in Boston was Lady Phipps, eagerly awaiting the return of her husband, Sir William Phipps, England's newly appointed governor of Massachusetts. She had held vigil while he was away these many months, campaigning for a new charter along with along with increased Mather. Lady Phipps, before marrying William, was the widow of, Cap of a Captain Roger Spencer and the daughter of John Hall. John Hall. She, counted she, she counted Samuel Seawall, one of the witch trial magistrates, as a relative. She was used to finery and boasted a beautiful brick home in one of Boston's elite neighborhoods. Along with all of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, she watched the waters off Boston Harbor for any sight of the nuns such rounding the rocks. Back in Salem Town, the magistrates continued on with the arrest and get more accused witches. Constable John Putnam was ordered to arrest John Willard, whose specter just appeared again to Susanna Sheldon and threatened her if she testified against him. Putnam dutifully arrived at Willard's home in Boxford to take him in, but the man had fled. Based on Sarah Churchill's testimony of spectral abuse, an arrest warrant was also sworn out for George Jacobs, George Jacobs Sr. and his granddaughter, Margaret. They were brought to Thomas Beadle's Tavern in Salem Town to allow the magistrates some respite from traveling to the village. John Willard's arrest warrant also stated he was to be brought to Beadle's, a block east of Salem Common. And so, George Jacobs Sr., leaning on his two walking sticks, went through an all-too-familiar inquest. Examination of George Jacob Sr. May 10th, 1692. The examination of George Jacob Sr., 10 May, 1692. H. I'm assuming that's Hawthorne. Here are them that accuse you of acts of witchcraft. J. Well, let us hear who are they and what are they? Abigail Williams, Jacob Lott. J. Because I am falsely accused. Your worships, all of you, do you think this is true? H. Nay, what do you think? J. I never did it. H. Who did it? J. Don't ask me. H. Why should we not ask you? H. Sarah Churchill well accuseth you. There she is. J. I am as innocent as the child born tonight. I have lived 33 years here in Salem. What then, if you can't prove that I am guilty? 
I will lie under it. Sarah Churchill said last night, I was afflicted at Deacon Ingersoll's, and Mary Walcott said it was a man with two staves. It was my master. Pray do not accuse me. I am as clear as your worships. As your worships. You must do the, the right judgments. H. What book did he bring you, Sarah? Sarah. The same that the other woman brought. J. The devil can go in any shape. H. Did he not, excuse me, appear on the other side of the river and hurt you? Did you not see him? Sarah. Yes, he did. H. Look there. She accused... She, she accuses you to your face. She charges you that you that you've heard her twi twice. Is it not true? What would you have me say? That's J, by the way. I never wrong no man, nor in word nor deed. H, here are three evidences. J, you tax me for a wizard. You may as well tax me for a buzzard. I have done no harm. H, is it no harm to afflict these? J, I never did it. H, but how comes it to be in your appearance? J. The devil can take it any likeness. H. Not without their consent. J. Please, your worship. It is untrue. I never showed the book. I am as silly about these things as the child born last night. H. That is your saying. You argue you have lived so long. But what then? Cain might live long before he killed Abel. And you might live long before the devil had so prevailed on you. J. Christ has suffered three times for me. H. What three times? J. He suffered the cross in Gaul. C. You had a good con confession, said Sarah Churchill. If you are guilty. J. Have you heard that I have any witchcraft? C. I know you lived a, a wicked life. J. Let her make it out. C. Doth he ever pray in his family? Not unless he's by himself. Why do you not pray in your family? J. I cannot read. C. Well, but you may pray for all that. Can you say the Lord's Prayer? Let us hear you. Note. He missed in several, he missed in several parts of it and could not repeat it right after many trials. Sarah Church, you know, uh, Churchwell. When you wrote in the book, you showed your master's name. You said, yes, sir. J. If she say so, if you do not know it, what will you say? H. But she saw you, or your likeness, tempted to write. J. One in my likeness, the devil may present my likeness. H. Were you not frightened, Sarah Churchwell, when the representation of your master came to you? C. Yes. J. Well, burn me or hang me. I will stand in the truth of Christ. I know nothing of it. H. Do you know nothing of getting your son George and his daughter Margaret to sign? J. No, nothing at all. George Jacobs Sr. was held over at Beatles Tavern for a second day of examination. The second examination of said George Jacobs. The bewitched fell in the most grievous fits and screenings when he, and screen and screechings. This is, this is I'm gonna give you an idea of what I'm reading. S C S C R E H I N G S. Okay, that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to figure out when I'm reading this. That's why I'll get mechanical, because I'm trying to figure this stuff out. When he came in, H, is this the man that hurt you? Note, asterisk, Abigail Williams cried out, this is the man, and fell into a violent fit. And Putnam, and Putman said, this is the man, and he hurts her and brings the book to her and would have her write in the book, and she should be as well as his granddaughter. H, Mercy Lewis, is this the man? L. 
This is the man, after much interruption by Fitz. He almost kills me. Note, Elizabeth Hubbard said the man never hurt her till the day he came upon the table. H. Mary Walcott, is this the man? Note, after much interruption by Fitz, she said this is the man. He used to come with two slaves and beat her with one of them. Staves, I'm sorry, not slaves, staves. He used to come with two staves and beat her with one of them. I love this book. It's really informative, but... Okay, H. What do you say? Are you not a witch? J. No, I I know it not. If I were to die presently... Note, Mary Lewis went to come near him, but fell into great fits. I'm sorry, Mercy Lewis. God, I'm all over the board tonight. Mercy Lewis testimony read... Okay, H. What do you say to this? J. Why is it... Why it is false? I know not of it. Any more than the child that was born tonight. Ann Putman said, Yes, you told me that you, you told me so that you had been so this forty years. And and Putman and Abigail Williams had each of them a pin a pin stuck in their hands, and they said it. And they said it was this old Jacobs. Abigail Williams testimony read H Are you not the man that made disturbance? Reverse at a lecture in Salem. J. No great disturbance. Do you think I use witchcraft? H. Yes, indeed. No, I use none of them. During a lull in the proceeding, Sarah Churchill left the meeting house in an agitated state. Sarah Ingersoll, daughter of Nathaniel Ingersoll, had been in attendance at the trial. She lived around the corner from, from Beatles Tavern. With her was George Jacobs' daughter. They confronted Sarah. God, this allergy is really bad. They confronted Sarah, who they could see was close to hysterics. Sarah broke down and said she had been lying about it all, and others with her. There had not been a devil's book. When Goody Ingersoll told her that, that she had believed her when she confessed of witchcraft and signing the book, Sarah wailed, No, 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 I never did. The magistrates had, threat, had threatened to imprison her along with Burroughs if she did not confess. She wailed. She had told the original story for such a long time and had been afraid to admit now it had been a lie. She cried that they wanted to believe the worst. If she told Reverend Noyes only once that she put her hand to the devil's book, he would believe her. But if she told him the truth a hundred times, he would not. As Susanna Sheldon made her way to the court for day two of Jacobs's questioning, she claimed the specters of John Willard and an old man followed her, skimming over the river on something that resembled a dish. The physical form of John Willard had yet to be found. His specter, however, was very active, tormenting Elizabeth Hubbard as well. Sarah Osborne dies in prison. As George Jacobs' examinations were being held, jailer John Arnold entered the Boston prison room and noted that Sarah Osborne had died. She had been in prison for nine weeks and two days. Sarah had been dragged from her bed, where she had been ill for some weeks for her initial inquisition back in February. The unhealthy conditions and poor food had finally taken their toll on her frail body. It was reported on the jail bill that she still owed pound one three zero or pence for her room and board at the prison. As the other prisoners looked on in horror and defeat, the woman's limp body was carried away. The first arrow the girls had fired off three months earlier had found their mark. A witch was dead. Margaret Jacobs. George Jacobs Sr., granddaughter, was led in next, was led in next. Oddly, her father, George Jacobs Jr., had not been arrested. 
George Sr. had been taken to the next to the next room of Beatles, his walking stick still still supporting his small frame. For Margaret Jacobs, the the frightening theatrics of the afflicted girls as she entered the meeting house were overwhelming. They were thrashing about and pointing at her. Her family had warned her that this might happen and urged her not to confess to witchcraft. The girls cried out that because she had recovered from her spectral torments, she must have signed the devil's book and was now free of his assaults. On and on it went, a swirling haze of threats and screaming accusations. The magistrates hammered at her that she must be causing the poor girl's fits. She would state later that all she recalled of the chaos was the threat of imprisonment and hanging if she did not confess. Broken down and in tears, she confessed with a lie, but she did so to save her life. Tatuba had been the first to confess, believing that by doing so, she would not hang. This was erroneous. The promise of salvation to the confessors was not of this physical realm, but of the spiritual one. It was their soul that may be saved by renouncing the devil and admitting to an alliance with him. So many took it to mean that they would be spared execution. Margaret Jacobs' con confession bundled in, in accusations against her grandfather, George Jacobs Sr. George Burroughs, John Willard, and a new name, Salem Inhabitant, we don't know, Alice Parker. One of those in attendance at Margaret's examination was Joseph Flint. He secretly slipped to the next room to tell George Sr. that his granddaughter had just confessed to witchcraft. If Margaret were innocent and yet confessed, she would be an accessory in her own death, Jacobs muttered brokenly. It would not be long before more of the Jacobs family would be arrested and brought in. John Willard, still on the run, was actively sending his specter to, to assault other afflicted girls. On the day of Margaret Jacobs' confession, his shape throttled Mercy Lewis. George Jacobs' senior spirit knocked 16-year-old John DeRich into the river with one of his walking sticks. DeRich said he would have drowned had, it, had not a passing neighbor rescued him. In Salem jail, Margaret Jacobs, facing the cold reality of her imprisonment, was doubled over with fear that the devil would come and take her for telling such horrid lies. Abigail Hobbs was not helping her anxious state, as she declared aloud that the devil was indeed inside the jail room and was trying to force her to sign his book. Magistrates Hawthorne and Corwin visited the Salem jail to question again the two confessors, Mary Warren, the proctor's maid, and Abigail Hobbs. They found Hobbs more reluctant to talk, answering most questions with, I don't know. Her only admission at the time was that she had been with a witch, she'd been a witch for six years and had signed two covenants with the devil, one for a four-year term and one for two years. They turned their attention to Mary Warren in hopes of better information. They got more than they bargained for, including the names of new witches tossed in as a bonus. Examination of Mary Warren. May 12, 1692. Mary Warren examination. Question. Whether you did not know that it was the devil's book when you signed? A, I did. A, okay. Answer. I texted to figure this out because they changed format. Answer. I did not know it then, but I know it now. To be sure, it was the devil's book. In the first place, to be sure, I did set my hand to the devil's book. I have considered I have considered of it since you were here last and it was the devil's book that my master proctor brought to me and he told me if I would set my hand to that book I should be well and I did set my hand to it but that which I did it 
but that but that which I did it was done with my finger. He brought the book and he told me if I would take the book and touch it that I should be well. And I thought then that it was the devil's book. Question. Was there not your consent to hurt the children when they were hurt? Answer. No, sir. But when I was afflicted, my master proctor was in the room and said, if you are afflicted, I don't think that's ye and you and all. I said, master, what make you say so? He answered, because you go to bring out innocent personalities or persons. I told him that could not be, and whether the devil took advantage at, at that, I know not, to afflict, to afflict them. And one night, talking about them, I said I did not care, though ye were tormented if ye charged me. Question, did you ever see any puppets? Answer, yes. Once I saw one made of cloth and, and, and Mistress Proctor's hand. Question, who was it? Who was it like, or which of the children was it for? Answer, I cannot tell, whether for Anne Put Putnam or Abigail Williams. For one of them it was, I am sure. I, I am sure. It was in my mistress's hand. Question, what did you stick into that poppet? Answer, I did stick in a pin about the neck of it, as it was in the proctor's hand. Question, how many more did, did you see afterwards? Answer, I do not remember that I ever saw any more. Yes, I remember one, and that was Goody, and that was Goody, and that Goody Parker brought a poppet unto me, a Mercy Lewis, and she gave me a needle, and I and I stuck it somewhere about the waist, and she appeared once more to me in the prison, and she said to me, "What, what, what have you got here?" And she told me that she was coming here herself. I had another person that appeared to me. It was Goody Putty Eater. Pewdieter, and said she was sorry to see me there. It was an it was an apparition, and she brought me a poppet. It was it was like to Mary Walcott, and it was a piece of stick that she brought me to stick into it. And somewhere about her arms, I stuck it in. Question: Where did she bring it to you? Answer: Up at Proctor's. Good Goody Parker told me she had been a witch these twelve years and more, and Puttyeater. Oh, that's the right saying for that name, told me that she had done damage and told me that she had hurt James Coy's child, taking it out of the mother's hand. Answer. This has to be a question. Who brought the last to you? Answer. My mistress, and when she brought it, she brought it, and her own person, her husband, with his own hands, brought me the book to sign, and he brought me an image which looked yellow. I believe it was for Abigail Williams being like her. Being like her, I put a thing like a thorn into it. This was done by his bodily person after I had signed the night, the night after I had signed the book. While she was thus confessing, Parker appeared and bit her extreme, her extremely on her arms. Okay, yeah, while she was confessing, Parker appeared and bit her extremely on her arms as she affirmed unto us. Question. Who have you seen more? Answer. Nurse in cloys and God's child after I had signed. Question. What said they to you? Answer. They said that I should never tell of them nor anything about them. And I have seen Goody Good herself. Question. 
Was that true of Giles Corey that you saw him and that he afflicted you the other day? Answer, yes, I have seen him often, and he hurts me very much. And Goody Oliver hath appeared to me and afflicted me and brought, the, and brought the book to tempt me. And I have seen Goody Corey the first night I was taken. I saw as I thought the apparition of Goody Corey and catched, it, catched at it as I thought and caught my master in my lap, though I did not see my master in that place at that time. Upon which my master said, "It's it's no, it's nobody, but I it is my shadow that you see." But my master was not before me, as I could discern. But catching at, but catching at the apparition that looked like Goody Corey, I caught hold of my master and pulled him down into my lap. Upon which he said, "I see there is no need to any of your talkings, for you are all possessed." Possessed, I said, P-O-S-S-E-S-T. For you are all possessed with the devil, for it is nothing but my shape. I have seen Goody Corey at my master's house in person, and she told me that I should be condemned for a witch, as well as she herself. It was at my master's house, and she said that the children would cry out and bring out, bring out all. Question, was this before you had signed? Answer, yes before I had any fits. Question. Now tell me about the mount, about the mount bank. What writing was that? Answer. I don't know. I asked her what it was about. This is on reverse. Must be on, on reverse test. Uh, uh, you know, deal with another attorney or something. But she would not tell me saying she had, had promised not to let anybody see it. Question. Well, what woe did, did you see more? Answer. I don't know. I don't know any more. Question. How long hath your master and mistress been witches? Answer. I don't know. They never told me. Q. What? Question. Q. What likeness or appearance have you had to bewitch you? Answer. They never gave me anything. While I was uh, reading this over upon the coming of coming in of Mr. Higginson and Mr. Hale, as soon as I read the name Parker, she immediately fell into dreadful fits as she affirmed after his fit was over, by the appearance of Goody Parker and Mr. Hawthorne presently, but naming Goody Puttyeater and tormented her very much and Goody Parker in the time of her examination in one of the Warren's fits. And one of Warren's fits told this examinant that she had bewitched the examinant's sister and was the cause of her dumbness, as also that she had lately killed a man aboard a vessel and told me that his name was Michael, M Michael Chapelman aboard the vessel in the harbor after they they were coming to anchor, and that he died with the pain in his side, and that she had done it by striking something into his side, and that she had struck this examiner's sister dumb, that she should never speak more. And Goody Puttyeater, at the same time, appeared and told this examiner that she had thrown J.N.O. Turner off of, a cherry, off of a cherry tree and almost killed him. And Goody Parker said, that she had cast away Captain Price's catch, Thomas Westgate Master, and Venus Colfox in it, and presently told told her that no Lapithorn, oh, J, J, J and O Lapithorn, somebody could like tell me what J and O is. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> J and O Lapithorn was lost in it, and that they were founded in the sea, and she saith that Goody Putty told her that she went up to Mr. Corwin's house to bewitch his mare 
that he should not go up to the far to the farms to examine the witches. Also, Mr. Burroughs, appearing at the same time and afflicting her, told her that he went to tie Mr. Hawthorne's or tie Mr. Hawthorne's horse's legs when he went last to Boston, and that he tried to bewitch him, though he could not his horse. Goody Puttyeater told her that she killed her husband by giving him something whereby he fell sick and died. It was she told her about seven or eight years since, and Goody Puttyeater told her that she was an instrumental to drown Warren's son in the harbor. Also, she said she did bewitch Jane O'Searle's boy to death as his master was carrying him out to sea so that he was forced to bring him back again. Also, Burroughs told her that he killed his wife off of Cape. Cape Ann. Okay. Parker told her also that Margaret Jacobs was a witness against her and did not and, and did change and did charge her yesterday upon her. That is Jacobs's parentheses says that's Jacobs's examination. In one interview, Mary Warren's list of witches ran like a who's who in the invisible world. Adding the names of Alice Parker and Anne Puttyter proved Mary was far from being done with her role as one of the accusers. She claimed that when she was living with the Proctors, puppets in the likeness of Abigail Williams and Anne Putnam were held out to her by her mistress, Elizabeth Proctor, where she was told to stab them in the neck with a pin. Even John Proctor concocted some yellow image in the likeness of Abigail Williams as they conjured up their evil. Without a doubt, Mary Warren has just signed the Proctor's death sentences. Chapter 24, The Charter Comes Home The devil's machinations were not always ones that could be labeled and tagged. So many of the strange afflictions befalling villagers defied explanation. How could they be anything but a result? of the evil hand visiting them. That hand had pushed the pieces about his chessboard like one would direct players upon a stage. All had played their parts with more eloquently than old Nick could have wished for. None of the suspicious maladies befalling the victims visited by witchcraft could compare with the mysterious afflictions of the Wilkins family. And it would be the missing John Willard who would pay, who would pay the price. John Willard. John Willard was a young man in his 20s who was once again linked to the formidable Putnam family. He had worked as a hired hand on Thomas Putnam Jr.'s farm. When Thomas was away for extended periods of time, John was asked to keep an eye on Ann Putnam Sr. and the children. Ann had just given birth and was praying the child would reach adulthood after losing so many others. It was not to be. The infant did not see its first birthday. For some reason, the Putnams, including young Ann Jr., blamed John for her death. John went on to marry the granddaughter of Bray Wilkins, a Salem village farmer, with a hill and pond named after him. Will's Hill and Wilkins Pond sat at the northwest, northwest corner of Salem Village, not far from the Boxford border, where John Willard lived. In 1692, Willard was hired to be the constable in Boxford and tasked with bringing in accused witches of that area. Perhaps it was his youth or his morals, but he could not continue shackling and jailing his neighbors. He gave up his post. This did not set well with many who saw this as, as suspicious. 
as a suspicious act for someone who should be eager to rid the community of witches. It was at this time that Anne Putnam Jr. began accusing him of witchcraft. The accusation troubled him so much that John Willard rode to his grandfather-in-law, Bray Wilkins home, and asked the older man to pray with him. Bray, oddly refused, claiming a previous engagement. On May 4, 1692, as the witchcraft arrest reached a fever pitch, John Willard arrived at a Boston dinner party Bray Wilkins was attending. John had asked his wife's uncle, Henry Wilkins Sr., to accompany him, which he did. Sometime during the dinner, Bray Wilkins felt suddenly ill and went into a different room where he was overcome. He claimed he could not eat or urinate, and he felt like a man on a rack due to a look John had given him during the party. Bray believed Willard had done me wrong. Willard left the party alone. Immediately upon his departure, Henry Wilkins' son Daniel blurted out, Willard ought to be hanged. Henry was shocked at his son's outburst. Bray Wilkins consulted a woman, he, a woman healer while in Boston, complaining of, of inexplicable pain and the inability to urinate. The woman asked whether those evil persons being accused of witchcraft in Salem had perhaps done him damage. Bray had plenty of time to mull over the healer's dire statement as he made the long 30-mile trip from Boston to his home at Wills Hill. Upon his arrival home, Bray was distressed to see that his grandson, 17-year-old Daniel, the very one who had blurted out that Willard ought to be hanged, was gravely ill. No one could decipher the young man's afflictions. His symptoms grew worse. By May 16, 1692, his family and neighbors were gathered in his room beside themselves as they watched Daniel struggling for breath. Mercy Lewis and Mary Walcott were in the room and announced that they saw John Willard's specter choke the young man while the shape of Goody Buckley pressed down upon his chest. They claimed the specter said the boy would be dead within three hours' time. As they continued their assault on the suffering youth, Henry and Benjamin Wilkins, Wilkins were also in the room. Henry watched as his son grappled with death as the afflicted girls cried out that witches had set upon him. The men saw nothing but the dying young man. Neighbor Thomas Flint also said he saw no specters. It was too late to save him. Daniel Wilkins died that night. A posse of men were rounded up to find John Willard, who had gone to hiding. Six of the ten henchmen were Putnam's. They found him tilling one of his meadows in Lancaster and brought him in. They shackled him in the watch house across from Ingersoll's, ordinarily, mainly due to the outcry of Ann Putnam uh, Jr. and others of the girls who went into hysterics when Willard rode into town behind one of them, behind one of the men. Constable John Putnam ordered 12 men to examine the body of newly deceased Daniel Wilkins. What they found was staggering. The boy's back was covered with punctures as though he had been prickled, pricked with an instrument about the bigness of a small owl. owl. His throat was bruised as though he had been strangled. They turned him over and blood spurted from his mouth and nose. The men ruled out poison, as there was no vomit, usually indicating poisoning of some kind. Right? Okay. They ruled Daniel Wilkins had died an unnatural death by some cruel hands of witchcraft or a diabolical act. Things did not look good for John Willard. Warrant number two for the apprehension of John Willard and officers returned. May 15th, 1692. 
to the marshal of the county of Essex, or to the constables in Salem, or any other marshal, or marshal's constables, or constables within this, within this their Majesty's colony of territory of Massachusetts in New England, you are in their Majesty's name hereby. I hope it's Majesty's Majesty's. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Just the way it's written. You are hereby required to, or magistrates. I'm sorry, it's probably magistrates. So it's magistrates. You are, you are, in their magistrates' names, hereby required to apprehend John Willard of Salem Village. Husband man, if, okay, Salem Village, husband man. If he may be found in your precincts, who stands charged with sundry acts of witchcraft by him done and committed on the bodies of Bray Wilkins and Daniel Wilkins, the son of Henry Wilkins, both of Salem Village and others. According to the complaint made before us by Thomas Fuller, Jr. and, Benj and Benjamin Wilkins, Sr., both of Salem, aforesaid yeoman, who being found you are to, to convey from town to town, from constable to constable, until he be brought before us, or such as may be in authority there in Salem, and hereof you are not to fail. Dated Salem, May the 15th, 1692. For us, John Hawthorne, assistance Jonathan Corwin, to be prosecuted according to the direction of Constable John Putnam of Salem Village, who goes with the same. There's a reverse. I have apprehended John Willard of Salem, the leg, according to the tenor of this warrant, and brought him before your worship, dated 18 May 1692, by me, John Putnam, Constable of Salem. On May 18, 1692, John Willard was led into the Salem Village Meeting House for his belated inquisition. The fact that he had fled from the magistrates, see, it was magistrate, I apologize, and caused two warrants to be made out of his arrest did not help with his cry of innocence. He was not the only examination to be held that day, but it was the longest and most anticipated. Examination of John Willard, May 18, 1602. The examination of John Willard, see, it's, it, was, it was miswritten. It's May 18, 1692. It's 1602. The examination of John Willard, 18 May 1692. The afflicted in most miserable fits upon his examinants draw, drawing near after several of them were recovered. He looked upon them, and they again fell into fits, whilst, whilst the warrant and return was reading. H. Here is a return of the warrant that you were fled from authority that that is an acknowledgement of guilt but yet notwithstanding we require you to confess the truth in this matter w i shall as i hope i shall be assisted by the lord of heaven and for my going away i was affrighted and i thought by my withdrawing it might be better i fear not but the lord in this due time will make me as white as snow h what do you say why do you hurt these it is you or your appearance. W. I know nothing of appearance. H. Is this the man? Several of the afflicted said yes. H. They charge you. It is you or your appearance. W. I know nothing of appearance. And the God in heaven will clear me. H. They charge you not only with this, but with dreadful murders, and I doubt not if you, if you be guilty. God will not want evidence. Note, Elizabeth Hubbard testified that he afflicted her, 
and then he looked upon her, and she fell into a fit. Mercy Lewis's testimony read, H. If you desire, mer desire mercy from God, then you must confess and give glory to God. W. As to sins I am guilty of, if the minister asks me, I am ready to confess. H. If you have revolted from God, you are a dreadful sinner. Note, Mary Warren cried out, Oh, he bites me! And Putnam cried out. Cried out much of him. H. Open your mouth. Don't bite your lip. W. I will stand with my mouth open, or I will keep it shut. I will stand anyhow, if you will tell me how. Note, and Put and Putnam's evidence read. H. Do you hear this evidence read? W. Yes, I do hear it. Susan Sheldon's testimony read. H. What do you say to, to this murdering and bewitching your relations? W. One would think, said he, that no one creature except they belong to hell from their cradle would be guilty of such things. Would belong to hell from their cradle would be guilty of such things. Okay. Oh, gosh. H. You say you will bewitch your grandfather because he prays that the kingdom of Satan may be thrown down. Note, the examinant began a larger oration. H. We do not send for you to preach. Ben. To note, Ben. Wilkins testified. Ben Wilkins testified. For all his natural affections, he abused his wife much and broke sticks about her in beating of her. H. You had need to boast of your good affections. W. There are a great many lies told. I could desire my wife be called. Note, Peter Prescott testified that he, with his own mouth, told him of beating his wife. H. It seems very much one of your confidence and ability to speak should be no more courageous than to run away. By your running away, you tell all that you are afraid. Note, the examination called upon Aaron Way and urged him to speak if he knew anything against him. Aaron Way, if I must speak, I will. Aaron Way. No, no asterisks. Aaron Way, if I must speak, I will. I can say you have been very cruel to poor creatures. H. Let some persons go to him. Ann Putnam said she would go. He said, not. He said, let not that person but another come. John Indian cried out. Oh, he cuts me. Susan Sheldon said there was a black man whispering, whispering in his ear, and he should not confess. H. What do you say to this? W. Sir. I heard nothing, nor see nothing. Note, Susan Sheldon tried to come near him, but fell down immediately, and he took hold of her hand with a great deal of dew. But she continued in her fit, crying out, Oh, John Willard, John Willard. H. What was the reason you could not come near him? S. The black man stood between us. W. They cannot come near any, any of that are accused. They cannot come near any that are accused. Okay. H. Why do you say they cannot come near any that were accused? You know, Nehemia <laughs> Abbott, they could talk with him. Note, Mary Warren in a great fit carried to him, and he clasping and he clasping his hand upon her arm was well was well presently. Why said he, Willard, was not? Was it not before so with Susanna Sheldon? Because she said, Sheldon, the, stand, the standards by you did not know clasp your hand before. That's what it says. The like said the constable and others. 
the likes of the constable and others. They all or most testified that the that the dead, those that had murdered, were now about him. H. Those that he had murdered were now about him. H. Do you think these are bewitched? W. Yes, I verily believe it. H. While others they have accused, it is found true on, and why should it be false in you? Note. Susan Sheldon and Mary Warren testified that now H. Torn. Okay, H. Appearance came, the, the page is torn. Appearance came from his body and afflicts him. H. What do you think of this? How comes this to pass? W. It is not from me. I know nothing of it. H. You have taxed yourself wonderfully. And maybe you do not think of it. You do not think, yeah, do not think of it. W. How so? H. You cried up your tender affections and hear round about they testify your cruelty to man and beast. And by your fight, by your flight, you have given great advantage to the law. Things will bear hard upon you. If, if you can therefore find in your heart to repent, it is possible you may obtain mercy and therefore bethink yourself. W. Sir, I cannot confess that I do not, that, that I do not know. Well, but if these things are true, heaven and earth will rise. H. Up against you. W. I am as innocent as the child that is now to be born. H. Can you pray the Lord's Prayer? W. Yes. Well, let us hear you. Note. He stumbled at the threshold. That is the beginning. And said, Maker of heaven and earth. 2. He began again and missed it. Is a strange thing. I can say it at another time. I think I am bewitched as, as well as they, and laughed. Three, again he began and said trespass against and missed us. Four, he began again and cried, being put puzzled. Well, this is a strange thing. W, I cannot say it. Note, he began again and could not say it. W, well, it is these wicked ones that do so overcome me. Note, Josh, Reyes Sr., gave in testimony that last night he said he hoped he should confess, though he had not, that though he had a hard heart, but, but he hoped he should confess. H. Well, say, say what you will confess. W. I am, I am as innocent as a child unborn. H. Do you not see God will, will not suffer you to pray for him? Are not you sensible of it? W. Why is it a strange thing? H. No, it is no strange. It is, it is no strange that God will not suffer a wizard to pray to him. There is also the jury of inquest for the murder that will bear hard against you. Therefore, confess. Have you never wished harm to your neighbors? W. Never. Never since I had a being. H. Well, confess and, and give glory to God. Take counsel. W. I desire to hearken to all good counsel. If it was the last time. I was to speak, I am innocent. This is a true account, no, this is a true account of the examination of John Willard without wrong to any party according to my original from characters at the moments thereof. Witness my hand, Sam Paris. John Willard was held over for trial on the grounds of witchcraft for torturing Mercy Lewis and Putnam Sr. and, and Putnam Sr. Jr., Susanna Sheldon, Abigail Williams, Mary Walcott, and Elizabeth Hubbard. The death of Daniel Wilkins had not been formally laid at his feet. Meanwhile, Bray Wilkins had suddenly found relief from a blocked bladder. The instant John Willard was shackled, Bray received so much relief of his two-week malady that it was hard to stop using the privy. 
Over in Ingersoll's ordinary, the place was bursting with accused witches awaiting their turn at questioning. Marshal George Herrick gratefully relinquishes charge of Rebecca Jacobs, Sarah Buckley, Mary, Mary Witheridge, Elizabeth Hart, and Thomas Farrar Sr. Elizabeth Hart was led into the meeting house, an elderly woman from Lynn, Massachusetts. She confronted Ann Putnam Jr.'s accusations against her and admitted that she had not recognized Hart at first. Ann Putnam Jr.'s, Putnam Jr.'s complaint against Elizabeth Hart. May 16, 1692. The deposition of Ann Putnam, who testifieth and saith that I have often seen the apparitions of Goody Hart among the witches, but I did not know who she was, nor she did me, nor hurt, till the 13th of May, 1692, that she came to my father's house personally and told me who she was and asked me if she had ever hurt me. But ever since that day, she has hurt me most grievously several times and urges me grievously to write in her book. Elizabeth was held over and Sarah Buckley was, un was ushered into the courtroom. Samuel Paris's written report was short and perfunctory, as though he was tiring of reporting the same redundant complaints of pinching, pulling hair, choking, and the like. Examination of Sarah Buckley, May 18, 1692. Abigail Williams said, This is the woman that hath bit me with her scraggy teeth a great many times. Mary Walcott and Putnam and Susan Sheldon unable to speak. Mercy Lewis said she see her upon her feet last night. Mary Walcott's testimony read, read, Elizabeth Hubbard said I see her last Sabbath day hurt Mary Walcott in the meeting house, but I did not know that she hurt me. And Putman's, test, and Put, Putman's testimony read, Mary Warren said that she saw this woman in a great company and that this woman would have her the said Warren go to their sacrament up to Mr. Paris. Elizabeth Hubbard, Susan Sheldon said, This woman hath tore her to pieces and tempted her with the book. Anne Putman, carried to this examinant exam in a fit, was made well upon the exam examinant's grasp, grasping her arm. Su Susan Sheldon, the like. Mary Warren, the like. When the examination was pressed, to when the examinant was pressed to confess, she did not hurt them. She was innocent. Susan Sheldon said there is the black man whispering in her ear. This is a true copy of the substance of the original examination of the above Sarah Buckley. Witness my hand upon my oath taken to this day in court, 15 September 1692, Sam Paris. Okay. The above record was used during Buckley's formal trial hearing in September. A formal court had not been formed as Massachusetts eagerly awaited the charter. It is clear the examinations of witches at the middle of May were cursory. Hoping the law under the new charter would soon take over the onerous chores performed so far in Salem Village. It must be remembered that no one overseeing these examinations had a law degree. Let me take a quick look here. Let's see something. Okay. All right, guys, it's about an hour, so I'm going to stop. Um, thank you for coming tonight. Tomorrow is a great pre is a new video that you're going to see that's pre-recorded, and that's going to feature Craig Bryant talking about British ghosts. So tune in. That'll be 6.30 p.m. Pacific. The links are on Facebook, and uh, 
I'll have links out for everybody to, to find the show. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your evening, and I'll see you soon.